From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Something I just so appreciated about Jewish law is that it goes deep into the weeds to really contemplate how our behavior affects people in a very specific way. So Jewish law doesn't, it doesn't just say, hey, give money to those who are in need. It, it talks very much about not just how much you should give, but how you should give. And in fact, the name that we give for helping those who are financially in need, it's called tzedakah, which is sometimes mistranslated as charity, but that's not what it means. It means justice. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. From 2009 to 2017, Sarah Hurwitz worked in the White House, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Prior to working in the Obama administration, Hurwitz was the chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton on her 2008 campaign for president and a speechwriter for Senator John Kerry and General Wesley Clark during the 2004 presidential election. Sarah Hurwitz is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, Today, we're discussing her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Sarah Hurwitz, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I want to take some time to allow my listeners to learn about the story that led you from away from Judaism and then back to Judaism. But on the way to filling in those gaps, I want to start our conversation at a peculiar moment. It's in 2014. You're at a retreat and you have just been told to go outside and talk to God, but you walk outside and instead you feel like you're talking to nothing, (laughs) which is a scene (laughs) that you describe in your book here all along. I would love for you to fill in for my listeners a little bit about how you came to be standing in that space and what changed for you as you began talking out loud to what you at first at least thought was nothing at all. Well, it's a funny story. I just started exploring Judaism and I wound up on this silent Jewish meditation retreat because I'd done meditation previously and thought, well, why not do it in a Jewish context? And the probably the third or fourth night of the retreat, they said, we're going to do this ancient Jewish practice. I'm not ancient, the centuries old Jewish practice, which is basically involves talking out loud to God out in nature where no one can hear you. And it has to be out loud, can't be in your head and you can't stop. So if you run out of things to say, you say, I've run out of things to say, run out of things to say. And if you don't believe in God, you say, I don't believe in you. I'm talking to nothing. And at that point in my life, that was pretty much the conversation I had. You know, I, I'm a rule follower. So I, I trooped out to the woods, started just saying these words, but I really did not feel like I was talking to anything. And in the process of doing this, you had come on this retreat, you said, because you had just begun to explore Judaism. Now, does that mean for my listeners that you had just stumbled across Judaism, or did you have a prior relationship to Judaism and you had walked away from it? It is the latter, actually. You know, I I grew up Jewish. My parents are Jewish. I'm from a Jewish family. I'm Jewish. But, you know, Judaism for me as a kid was these two kind of dull services at the major holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and then kind of a boring Seder at Passover. And by the time I had my bat mitzvah, the Jewish coming of age ceremony at age 12 or 13, I just thought, you know what, there's nothing to see here right? Like I'm proud to be Jewish. I'm I'm a cultural Jew. I'm a Jew by heritage. But if I want to find meaning or spirituality or connection, I'll really have to go elsewhere. And so, you know, fast forward 25 years later, I randomly broke up with this guy I was dating. I had all this time on my hands that I was trying to fill because I was lonely and anxious. And I happened to hear about an intro to Judaism class at the local Jewish community center. And I really signed up just to fill time. You know, I was not on a spiritual journey. It was not some big epic crisis. Could have been a ceramics class or a karate class, probably would have taken it. But what I found in that class just totally blew me away. 
Now, you used a phrase just a moment ago, and throughout our conversation, we'll be going deeper into what this phrase means. But you said, I was a Jew by heritage. I was a cultural Jew. I think maybe for some of my listeners, that might be a surprising phrase. They may not understand what you mean by that, because for most outsiders, Judaism is oftentimes classified as a religion, which means it's a way of relating to a great other, a god, a transcendent force, a big something in the sky. So when you were saying that you were a Jew by heritage, a cultural Jew, that that was the level of Judaism that you were comfortable with. If you could fill that in for me a little bit and for my listeners, what what does that mean or what did that mean to you at that time? It's a great question. This is something that's often confusing to people. You know, Christianity is a religion, right? If you say, you know, if you're a Christian, but then you stop believing in God, you don't believe that Jesus was the son of God, it's hard to argue that you're necessarily still a Christian, you know, that that belief is actually pretty central to most forms of Christianity. Judaism is a little bit different. Judaism is actually a peoplehood, one in which you are born into or which you join through conversion. Now that peoplehood has a religion associated with it, which is Judaism. But as someone who is born Jewish, I can reject every single tenet of Jewish religion, but I'm still Jewish, right? I was born into the peoplehood. So I think this can be confusing to people because they'll meet someone who's Jewish, who doesn't have any kind of Jewish religious practice, who doesn't believe in God, but that person is still Jewish because their Judaism is at foundation. It really is a peoplehood, not just a religion. I love this phrase, peoplehood. And so if I'm hearing correctly what you mean by peoplehood, it's a a way of identifying with your ancestors, but it's also a way, if I'm if I'm hearing this right, of identifying with customs, with certain types of dishes, with certain types of practices, with with certain ways of speech. And when I'm saying these things, are you hearing reflected in what I'm saying, what you meant by peoplehood, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's about right. You know, a, a peoplehood, it's, you know, this peoplehood comes with, I think you're right, you know, a history, it comes with a number, you know, diverse range of cultures and traditions. And yeah, I think that's about right. I think that's, that's appropriate. But one thing this is not I, that I want to be very clear about, you sometimes hear people saying, oh, you know, I'm an ethnic Jew. That is actually not so much a thing, right? Jews are every race and ethnicity. To say that Judaism is an ethnicity, that's not correct. You know, it is really more a peoplehood that includes people of every race and ethnicity, whether you're born into Judaism or you come to Judaism through conversion. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. We're talking about her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Well, a moment ago, you were talking about how, as a youth, right after your bat mitzvah, the coming-of-age ceremony in Judaism, you stepped away from Judaism, and you say that you were a Jew by heritage, a cultural Jew, but you wouldn't have been considered a, a religious Jew or a devout Jew. And so I'm wondering, as you stepped away, did you step from Judaism to something else? Did you explore some other kind of spirituality? Or did you simply become, for want of a better word, secular and just not worry about the spiritual anymore until this rediscovery of Judaism later in life? You know, I really did just become secular. I didn't really explore other traditions. You know, I had this belief that I'm very ashamed of now and embarrassed because it's a belief founded in incredible ignorance and arrogance. But I had this belief that religion was for folks who who needed that kind of thing, right? They needed a crutch. They needed comfort. You know, I, I really had a very, it's so embarrassing even saying this now, but I had a, kind of a negative view about what religion was. And that is a view that I have completely revised as an adult. You mentioned that you had been born into a Jewish family. And so what was the process of stepping away from Judaism like for you as a youth? Did your family resist that? Did they try and bring you back to the practice of the faith? Or did they join you in this departure from Judaism? You know, my family was, we were pretty, we were not particularly religious growing up. So it wasn't, you know, when I you know, when I decided that I was kind of done with Judaism, you know, people, my, my parents were okay with that. They respected that as a choice. You know, they didn't try to impose anything on me. And, you know, they weren't particularly religious themselves. So it was not, really wasn't a big issue at all. If I can just ask a, one more question about this period of your life, if you could say the primary thing or the one or two things that kind of drove you away from Judaism, if you could sum that up, what would that have been at that time? Or what would the youthful you have said at the time? You know, I think what drove me away was that 
you know, I didn't have exposures to Judaism that were moving to me. I kind of had this assumption that Judaism consisted of three holidays, which is obviously not true, right? You know, Judaism has ethical wisdom, it has spiritual wisdom, it has numerous holidays, life cycle rituals, you know, cultures, traditions. There's so much that comprises Judaism, but I was only really exposed, you know, extensively to certain parts of it that I just that just weren't exactly what most moved me. And so thinking back to it now, I realize how much I missed, you know, how much I didn't get a chance to see until I was an adult and came back to it sort of on my own accord. Well, when you say how much you missed, I'm wondering, did you miss it just because you were a kid and kids miss things and kids kind of look at the surface appearance of things and they don't always delve deeper? Was that sort of a shortcoming on the youthful use part or was that a shortcoming without casting any judgment, of course, but a shortcoming on the adults around you who were failing to show this deeper, more complex side of Judaism? Like, how, Where do you balance the scales on that? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think Judaism is a really sophisticated and very, you know, it's a very deep and vast tradition. And I, I do think it's hard for kids to access the most, some of the most moving, radical, inspiring, transformative wisdom that Judaism has to offer. You know, that's not, that stuff really isn't accessible to kids, but I think there is a lot of fun stuff that's accessible to kids. And I just, you know, for whatever reason, it just didn't, wasn't resonating for me as a kid. And I don't think, you know, I certainly don't blame the adults in my life. I think there were a lot of really well-intentioned adults doing their very best to try to give me a good Jewish education, but it's, it's very tough you know, for parents in Hebrew schools to compete with all of the secular activities out there. You've got sports and arts and extracurriculars, and there's just families are under so much pressure juggling so much today. It can be very tough to compete with that. You just used a phrase that I want to make sure all my listeners are tracking with. You use the phrase Hebrew school. And if you could just take a moment and flesh out for us what that is for those that might be unfamiliar with that as a concept. Sure. So Hebrew school is sort of the equivalent. It's almost the Jewish equivalent to Sunday school. It's a um, kind of an after school or on weekends way of educating children in Judaism. So, you know, in Hebrew school, you'll learn about Jewish holidays, Jewish histories, Jewish life cycle rituals, like, you know, marriage, bar bat mitzvah, death, and you'll learn to read Hebrew generally so that you can follow along in the prayers in your synagogue and so that you can you know, be prepared for your bar bat mitzvah, which is a coming of age ceremony that involves a fair amount of, of reading in Hebrew. And just so that my listeners have a full picture of your childhood, would you describe the community in which you grew up as one where Judaism was very visible? Was it one where there were multiple synagogues or was it one where it was more invisible and you were not being reinforced by your peers going through the same process? You know, I was really lucky to grow up in a town with a pretty vibrant Jewish community. Back then, there was one, I believe there was only one synagogue, but now there are two. And, you know, there was a pretty, I'd say my town was probably, gosh, maybe 10, 10, 15% Jewish. There was a really pretty thriving community. I had a lot of Jewish friends. We had Jewish neighbors. Which certainly, I certainly didn't feel marginalized as a Jew. And you mentioned that your family also sort of drifted and was, was not really observant, was not really practicing. Would you say that your family has stayed in that space while you have begun to move back to Judaism? And, and in the next segment, I want to get in more to the process by which you, you came back to Judaism. But, but would you say that your family is sort of still in that liminal space, in that space of, of sort of not being very involved, or have they also come back to Judaism? My family, I generally don't talk about their practice just because I, I would want them to represent that, not me. I don't think I can really describe where they are. Like I just, I really try to just talk about my own practice and approach to Judaism. I would have to, I want them to be able to speak for themselves. So I don't know, I don't know if I necessarily characterize them the way that you describe them, but I, you know, I would sort of defer to them to talk about their own practice. That makes sense, of course. Well, with that, maybe we can take a break, but let me make sure that listeners know who you are. So you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. Now, she, from 2009 to 2017, worked in the White House serving 
as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Prior to working in the Obama administration, Hurwitz was the chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton in her 2008 campaign for president and a speechwriter for Senator John Kerry and General Wesley Clark during the 2004 presidential election. Today we're speaking about her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you like the conversations that you're hearing today, please check out our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you can find all of our episodes for free for your listening enjoyment. Today we're speaking with Sarah Hurwitz. She was a speechwriter and worked in the White House from 2009 to 2017. She worked as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Today we're talking about her recent book, here all along, finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. Well, in the first segment, we talked a little bit about your childhood and how you stepped away from Judaism into basically a, a kind of secular worldview, not really thinking about spirituality, not really thinking about the kind of weightier questions. But then you you say in the book that you had a moment where you had a breakup and that sort of drove you to begin looking for something. And at one point in the book, you talk about uh, the concept of a God-shaped hole. Maybe you wouldn't have described it then, but perhaps you could tell my listeners a little bit about what that stepping back towards Judaism was like for you. Yeah. So, you know, I took this intro to Judaism class really just on a whim to fill time, not expecting a lot. I could not believe what I found. There was so much wisdom in this tradition about how to be a good person and how to lead a a meaningful, worthy life and how to find really profound spiritual connection, not, you know, a man in the sky, but something, something deeper and more plausible to me. And I just thought, you know, where has this been all my life? And I started learning more. I took another class. I read hundreds of books. I started attending these silent Jewish meditation retreats. And, you know, I have to say, I found it really challenging to learn about Judaism as an adult. You know, this is a really vast, deep tradition that includes history and holidays and rituals and language. And there's just so much. And, you know, everything in Judaism is sort of hyperlinked to everything else. So if you don't understand the history, you're really going to struggle to understand the depth of the holidays and life cycle rituals. And if you don't understand how the sacred texts are structured, you're going to struggle with understanding the theology, right? It's just a very, it's a really quite a deep and and complex tradition. So it was, it was challenging, but just incredibly rewarding. Well, and one of the things that becomes very clear to a reader when they begin reading your book here all along is that it might not even be proper to speak about Judaism, but rather Judaisms, that there are multiple ways of approaching this tradition, which is four to 6,000 years old and has, as you said, this complexity of ritual, this complexity of interpretation. And so as you began to go back into Judaism, can you talk to us a little bit about the specifics of what you were learning? Were you beginning to dance wildly like a Hasid? Were you, uh, were you davening with a prayer book? How did you begin to get into Judaism? What was that like concretely during those early classes? Yeah, you know, I think what most spoke to me in Judaism as I was learning were Jewish ethics and Jewish spirituality. You know, the Jewish ethics spoke to me because what I saw was an ethical bar that was so much higher 
than the secular ethic around me, which amounts to something along the lines of do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt other people too much, which is, you know, a pretty low bar. I think we can agree. You know, Judaism articulated a much higher bar. And something I just so appreciated about Jewish law is that it goes deep into the weeds to really contemplate how our behavior affects people in a very specific way. So Jewish law doesn't, it doesn't just say, hey, give money to those who are in need. It, it talks very much about not just how much you should give, but how you should give. Do you give in a way that empowers people? So it's better to give a loan or a job. Do you give in a way that doesn't humiliate people? So it's best to really give anonymously. Are you careful not to run into someone to whom you've made a loan if you know they can't pay it back because you don't want to embarrass them or stress them out? And actually, even those who receive aid, who receive assistance, are expected to give assistance. And in fact, the name that we give for helping those who are financially in need, it's called tzedakah, which is sometimes mistranslated as charity. But that's not what it means. It means justice. And it's justice in the same way that fair procedures in a courtroom are, are justice. You know, you don't have fair courtroom procedures just when you're feeling charitable or out of the kindness of your heart. It's mandatory. And the same is true of Sadaka. This is a mandatory thing that we do for the sake of justice. So I was very moved by the quality of Jewish ethics. And it really, you know, it revealed very much the old lie that Christianity is a religion of love and Judaism is a religion of law. That's a profound misunderstanding. You know, Jewish law is very much how we reflect and act out love. I'll give you a secular example. You can say, hey, we should really have a school lunch program for kids who are you know, financial in, financially in need. And that's great. But if you, if you implement that lunch program in a way that humiliates these kids, that makes them feel less than, that singles them out, okay, that's fine. But you know, you're really going to do some damage. You're going to hurt them. But if you care very much about these children and you actually think through all the intricate details of how do we make sure that we're not singling them out or embarrassing them? How do we make sure they get the same kind of food the other kids get? That's loving. Right? That's how you implement love, not just by sort of generic gestures, but by a real contemplation of how what you're doing affects people in a very personal on the ground way. And so I think that Jewish law is very much a manifestation of profound love for each other and, and for something greater. I'm so grateful for you saying at length what the idea of Jewish law is and the connection to justice, but I would like to linger here for just a moment more because I think some of my listeners might hear the word law and when they encounter law, it's like, did you drive 55 in a 45-mile-per-hour zone? You've broken the law. Did you steal that loaf of bread? You've broken the law. And there's no question about the way or the reason why you broke the law or the, the social context around that. But when I hear you talking about Jewish law, I'm hearing again and again the ringing out of the social context. You need to think about how the application of this law affects the relationship and the well-being of the person that you are relating to in that moment. Now, am I getting that right? Am I, am I picking up on that difference or am I missing something? No, I mean, I think, I think you're right. Like Jewish law was developed very much with the, the needs of other human beings in mind, their feelings, their dignity, their humanity, right? And it's not just like, do this, don't do that. It really involves thinking about how other people will will feel. Anyway, there, there's one particular Jewish law that I, I've always found quite moving, which is that, you know, if you go into a store, you're not supposed to ask the the shop owner for the price of something if you have no intention whatsoever of buying it. So if you're just bored and you're just curious, that's actually not okay to take up their time because this is a person who's trying to make a living. And when you ask them for the price of something, you get their hopes up that you might possibly buy it. And that's really actually quite unfair to them. You're kind of treating them as an object for your entertainment. And, you know, I think about just the specificity of that particular law. Like, did they really need to get that much in the weeds and specify this precise situation? But when you think about it, that's tremendously loving. It's really thinking about the plight of this person who's trying to make a living, deserves not to be led on by someone who has no intention of buying their product. You know, I find that incredibly powerful. Well, and so when we think about that, you say it's incredibly loving, but this also, I mean, you said a moment ago that you were attracted to Judaism in part because the ethics that it had was a higher bar than the kind of ethics that you were dealing with in your regular day-to-day -day life. This is also a higher bar for the very concept of the law. And so maybe our English is failing us here. Maybe we should be using, in some cases, these more originary words, because when we use law, we might lose so much of this intricate meaning. This is really 
really fascinating. But you used another word a moment ago that I really would like to hear more about. You've used several times this phrase, wisdom. And I'm wondering what you mean or what the Jewish tradition means when it talks about wisdom. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually almost think I use the words wisdom and law interchangeably. And you're right. I can see how that would be a little bit confusing, right? It's not like, you know, there isn't some law is probably a clumsy word. You know, the, the, the Hebrew word would be mitzvot, which are, are commandments. It's sort of loosely translated as, as commandments, but it's this idea that, you know, we're commanded to act in a certain way. And it's, it's funny, you're right. I can sort of see how that would be confusing, but they're, they're very similar, right? Our wisdom is kind of reflected through our laws and through these commandments that we try to honor. And so when we're talking about wisdom, we're not talking about a person sort of sitting cross-legged on the, on the top of the mountain going, om, om. We're, we're talking instead, <laughs> no. it's, it's an embodied <laughs> wisdom. This is, this is very much a lived wisdom, isn't it? Very much so. Judaism really doesn't have an ascetic tradition along the lines of what you've just depicted, right? To, to kind of go and live alone by yourself in a mountaintop without a family, without a community, that's just not a Jewish way of life. You know, Judaism is very much lived kind of on the ground. And, you know, when you look at many Jewish laws originate from these ancient commentaries that were developed by a group of rabbis in, you know, basically from the years zero CE to around 600 CE. It's the common era. The Christian way of saying it is AD, but in Judaism, we say CE. And I think common usage now is CE. The people who developed these laws, they were rabbis who had spouses, they had families, they lived within communities. So they were in some ways, and many of them actually had jobs that were separate from their their studies. So these were people who were working, who were dealing with all the complexities of family, of colleagues, of living in community. And I think our laws very much reflect that. Whereas I think if you have a more ascetic tradition and people who are removed from society who are creating the laws, they might be different as a result. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. From 2009 to 2017, she worked in the White House, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. I'd like to turn now to the book itself here all along. You have set out for the reader a smorgasbord, a feast of information about Judaism, from the, the customs and the practices to the history to the interpretive traditions. And I would love, first of all, as you were pitching this book to a publisher, what did you suggest to the publisher that you wanted to accomplish with this book? What, what was the big picture that you said, this, if, if you let me do it, this is what we'll accomplish? Yeah, you know, I felt like I wanted to do what I had done as a speechwriter, which is you're taking a bunch of maybe complicated policy, difficult issues, the personal stories and sensibility of the person you're writing for, and you're really trying to weave it together into a story that captures the beating heart of whatever the issue is. So, you know, if you're writing a speech about healthcare, someone might tell you who's a healthcare policy expert might say, well, you know, this new policy is going to bend the cost curve and improve the delivery system and cut costs as a percentage of GDP. It's like, okay, that's great. But is it going to help people afford their medications? Will it help lower their premiums? Can people see the doctor they want to see? You know, it's your job as a speechwriter to really help translate things into the language that speaks directly to people's hearts, that speaks directly to who they are and where they are. And you know, I'm not a rabbi and I'm not a scholar. And so I really want to bring a very personal and relatable, but also quite substantive account of the most, what I thought was the most radical, transformative, inspiring, meaningful wisdom that Judaism had to offer for our lives today, both for Jews and for people of other faiths and no faith background at all. You know, you can read this book with no religious or Jewish background whatsoever. It's really meant to be accessible. And you can also read it if you're someone who's quite religious and observant. I've actually had a number of quite Orthodox Jews say, you know, this book moved me, right? This was a fresh perspective. It was an interesting take. So it's really designed as a book that's, that's relevant for everyone. You used a phrase a moment ago. You said that you acted as a translator. I think that that's such an apt phrase. There's a point in the book where you're talking about 
your time when you were working with First Lady Michelle Obama as her speechwriter, and you would listen to her speak, and you would try and capture what she was saying in real time in your laptop. What struck me about that, and what struck me about what you've just said about your your writing of this book here all along, is how much it's not simply a matter of translating, but that the translating really begins with very careful listening, doesn't it? Yes, very much so. Right, very much so. I mean, I I reached out to a lot of I I reached for a lot of different sources in this book. I read the accounts and the commentaries and the books of Jews from just every possible background, you know, very innovative, sort of um, very modern Jews, Jews from historical Jews, Jews of all kinds of denominations and practices. And I really think all of them have something useful and profound to say. And I learned a lot from a diversity of sources. And as you're in this process of translating, I'm thinking about, in my graduate work, one of the figures that I worked on was a a Jew named Franz Rosenzweig from uh, the the Jewish Lairhouse movement. And he thought a lot about the process of translation. And sometimes translation means pulling a culture and a language closer to you and making that alien language more familiar. Sometimes it's taking your own language and pushing it towards the alien and the unfamiliar. And using that sort of metaphor, if you were to think about what you were doing in this process of translation that led to this book here all along, would you think that you were pulling Judaism closer to the familiar, or were you pulling our secular world closer to the unfamiliar in your process of translation? You know, it was probably the latter. I think I was trying to pull our world more closely to Judaism, trying to sort of, trying to just show, you know, I I really wanted to show how these Jewish concepts that may seem unrelatable or that may seem, you know, counterintuitive or maybe outdated are actually quite relevant in the modern world. I mean, I think about something like Shabbat, which I know for a lot of people in a secular world, which this is the Jewish Sabbath where people from Friday night to Saturday night, they will try to live their lives in an entirely different way. You know, if you are someone who is an observer of Shabbat in a very traditional and rigorous sense, you know, you will not work. You won't use electricity. You won't check your phone. You won't drive. You know, there's a lot of things you do. And you can look at that from a secular perspective and say, well, how is that restful? You know, that doesn't sound fun. I like to watch Netflix, right? Like, what, why are you doing that? Well, Shabbat doesn't actually mean rest. It means pause. And what what you're doing on Shabbat is you're basically plugging up all the nooks and crannies through which the modern clamoring marketplace consumerist world threatens to seep. You know, our society is constantly saying, you don't have enough, you're not enough. Buy more, spend more, work more so then you can spend more, produce more so that you can consume more. It's never enough, never enough. And it's exhausting. And what Judaism is saying on Shabbat is, no, 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 pause. Stop spending, stop working, stop you know, just be present with what you have, what you have is enough, and just take a thorough break from this consumerist marketplace world and spend time with people you love, spend time in reflection and prayer. And I think once people kind of understand the value of that, you know, even from their secular perspective, I think we can all see the power of that. I'm trying to sort of show how this really matters in our world today. And this was one of the most eye-opening and powerful moments in your book here all along for me. In that section on Sabbath, on Shabbat, you are not simply looking at Jewish writers, but you also bring in Walter Brueggemann, a Christian writer. And you take his way of thinking about, you know, we need to be using Sabbath to think critically about the marketplace. But this speaks to just how broad the listening that you did for this book is. You weren't simply listening to Jewish voices. You were listening to all voices of wisdom, from what I could tell. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, one of our greatest Jewish thinkers, Maimonides, he's a just seminal Jewish thinker. He said, you know, listen to the truth from wherever it comes. And I think that's a pretty, pretty wise approach. And so as we are beginning to listen alongside of you, certainly, as you have said, Judaism is very complex. So as we're moving towards our next break, I wonder if you could give my listeners a couple of, you know, as they begin to move into the landscape, what are the tops of the mountains that they should be attending to when they first begin to look at Judaism? Is it the holidays? Is it the language? Is it the practice? What would you say are the sort of things that they'll notice first when they begin this process of becoming more familiar with Judaism? Oh my goodness. That's a great question. You know, people, people put different emphasis on, on different parts of Judaism, depending on their, their interests, their inclinations. But I would say first there's a sensibility, 
you know, this is a religion that really is based on on commentary and questioning and debating. So there's a real, you have to have a very active engagement. It's not about a kind of passive acceptance. So just that sensibility is key. I think certainly Shabbat is a big part of, of a traditional Jewish practice. The holidays and life cycle rituals, certainly, I think Jewish history, definitely. I think that understanding Jewish spirituality and theology, understanding that there's not a a lot of dogma around that. There's actually quite a diversity of Jewish spirituality and theological conceptions. I think all of that, I guess I'm not really, I'm not really helping here, right? I'm not trying to, I'm not really able to kind of simplify it down to a few things. And that is, that's the challenge of translating Judaism. Well, and and I take that, I take that caution. (laughs) Nevertheless, a reader or a listener should not be daunted by this process. And that's part of what you said you were doing from the outset for the book. You're not trying to make this a scary process and you're not trying to overwhelm them. The other thing that I really noticed about the book is how clearly and carefully you're laying out these pieces and showing these connections. So there was a real intentionality to, even though there's a lot to look at, and even though there's a lot of ways that a given listener or a given reader might engage with this, it was also clear to me that you were wanting to make sure that the landscape was navigable. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Exactly. No, you said that just right. I mean, I really, each chapter is devoted to a different topic in Judaism. So it's organized in a pretty clear way. You know, a chapter on Shabbat, a chapter on prayer, a chapter on ethics, a chapter on God. And then actually in the back of my book is an appendix with a very carefully curated list of books, websites, experiences, organizations that people can use as a roadmap for their own learning. Or, you know, if they if they find like they're really excited about learning more about Jewish ethics, there's recommendations for that. If they're interested in Jewish spirituality, there's recommendations for that. You know, I really wanted to inspire people to go on their own journey, whether it's a Jewish journey because they're Jewish themselves or thinking of becoming Jewish, or they live with someone Jewish or have Jews and their friends or families, or they're just a seeker or someone of another faith who's just who's just curious. You know, I really we Jews we certainly don't proselytize. But don't proselytize doesn't mean don't share. And I'm, I'm really excited to share Judaism with a variety of people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz, and from 2009 to 2017, she worked in the White House, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Today, we're discussing her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism, after finally choosing to look there. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find all of our episodes from all of our previous seasons arranged for you for free, and you can listen to your heart's content. Today, we're speaking with Sarah Hurwitz. From 2009 to 2017, she worked in the White House, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Today we're talking about her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. You made a passing comment earlier in our conversation that you were not necessarily looking for a kind of old man in the sky approach to God when you came back to Judaism, that that wasn't what your focus was. You were more interested in the ethics, the wisdom of Judaism. I'd really love to hear more about that, because that may be surprising to some of my listeners. Wouldn't you go to a religious practice, and again, you said very clearly this is not simply a religious practice, but for those that think that it is, they would think, oh, well, this is a way to get closer to God. But you actually, in your book here all along, take a very patient and beautiful chapter where you talk about all of the different ways that Judaism begins to think about God. And there's not only one way, is there? There's multiple ways that the Jewish tradition thinks about God. Exactly. You know, 
I think the Jewish tradition, there's a really a fundamental theological humility where we believe that we're speaking about something that is just so far beyond the capacity of our tiny little human brains to completely define or categorize. You know, we don't have some simplistic definition or creed or dogma of God. You know, to do so is in a way to kind of shrink the divine to the limits that our tiny little human brains can manage. And that that's almost a form of idolatry. You know, so instead of a kind of dogma around the divine, what we have more is it's more commentary, right? You have centuries worth of people who are articulating their their conception of the divine in accordance with their own experience and also with their own understanding of Jewish tradition. So, you know, you have this very diverse theology, although I will be clear, you know, there there is a pretty clear way that we understand how to live life in response to the divine. And that's that's captured in our Jewish laws and wisdom. So this isn't a free-for-all, right? We might not be able to say exactly what God is, but I think we as Jews certainly have a pretty clear sense of how we live our lives in response to the divine. So, you know, I was just really, I'd always thought that God had to be a man in the sky who controls everything and rewards you if you're good and punishes you if you're bad. And I simply don't believe that. I see evidence to the contrary every single day of my life. And I just, I've never been comfortable with that concept. Fortunately, Judaism is actually, it's actually provides quite an array of constructs of God, of ways of sort of imagining and understanding, or I shouldn't say understanding, of imagining and conceptualizing God so as to draw near. You know, the man in the sky concept pushed me away, but there are also a lot of Jewish concepts that help me draw near. You know, there is the mystical conception of God in Judaism that everything is God. You're God. I'm God. The idea that there's any barrier between the two of us and other people, that's just an illusion. So when I pass that man on the street who says, hey, could you spare a dollar? That man is God. Like, let's be very clear. That man is a manifestation of the divine. It's pretty profound. There is Martin Buber, a Jewish thinker who says that God is what arises between two people in deep human relation with each other, both being fully vulnerable with each other, both fully receiving each other. In those moments of deep human relation, what arises between those people is God. There is a thinker named Mordecai Kaplan who says that God is the process by which we each become our highest and truest selves, by which everything in the universe reaches its fullest potential. You know, none of these things are a being in the sky. And you see this real complexity throughout Jewish tradition where people will talk about God as wildly imminent, I mean, sorry, as wildly transcendent, beyond all time, space, and imagination. And in the same breath, they'll also talk about God as imminent here in the world with us, available for human relation. Both those things can't be true. But again, you know, we don't shrink God to sort of fit the boundaries of our human rational minds. And so there is this sense of, okay, well, we don't know. You know, all we can do is we have our intimations, we have our intuitions, we each have our our own little piece of the elephant that we're feeling. And we kind of, you know, at some point they give some kind of image, but I really appreciated this humility. I appreciated this diversity. It, it helps me develop what I think is kind of an adult spirituality where, I, you know, which is not, I don't have a clear theology of God, but I do have a lot of different conceptions and ideas that I think help me relate to the divine. And just to make sure that my listeners are tracking with what you're saying about this complexity and this humility about trying to own God as a concept or say that we necessarily have a theology that explains God, one of the practices from one branch of Judaism, particularly the Hasidic, the ultra-Orthodox practice, is not even to name God by name, but instead to simply speak of the name, Hashem. And to me, that is a very concrete example for someone that maybe is unfamiliar with all all of the complexities about the approach to God that you're talking about, to start with that bare practice to say there are certain communities in Judaism that will not even believe that they have ownership over God as a concept. They'll simply speak about God's name as a way of, of humbly approaching this entire concept, not with owning it, but with, as you say, just coming, drawing near to it. When I, when I characterize it that way, am I following the thought that you're putting out here, or am I missing something? Precisely. No, that's exactly right. I actually, that's one of my favorite names. God, what's funny is Judaism, there's actually many, many nicknames and and sort of terms of endearment almost for God. It's like the merciful one, the compassionate one, the rock, the redeemer, you know, that reflects the diversity of theology. And Hashem is a, that's a very commonly used one. And it does, I think, reflect that tremendous humility, right? We're we're not going to define this. We're just, we're just going to call it the name. And if you look in a, a Jewish prayer book, you'll see the word 
that we say, we pronounce it Adonai, which means God. But if you actually look at the letters, that's not what they spell out. They spell out what's almost considered God's proper name, but we don't even say it. Because number one, we don't actually know exactly how to pronounce it. That has been lost in over time. But number two, it's like you don't even say God's proper name. You actually say almost a nickname for that. And Hashem is almost a nickname for Adonai. So again, you're you're almost getting a couple of layers removed. And I think that does reflect this humility. If that's the case, if a person listening to this were to say, well, I'm not clear yet, does Sarah Hurwitz believe in God? Would you be comfortable even beginning to answer that question, or would you want to complexify that question or ask some questions of the person questioning you? It's such a great question. You know, I the idea of believing in something is sort of confusing to me because, again, people really, you know, I think the idea of God is just so stuck in our minds as a being up above who controls everything. And that's actually not the only definition of God, but I, I do think people tend to think of that as the only kind of legitimate explanation. Like everything else is just kind of new age nonsense, but that's God. And if, you, if you're with him, you're a believer. And if you're not, you're an atheist, you know? So I, you know, do I believe in that being that controls everything? I don't, I don't. But would I say that I, would I say that I'm someone who, I guess if you really asked me, do you believe in God? I'd say, yes, not that kind of God. But I think a, a more accurate way for me to express myself would be to say, it's less about belief and more about, I guess I would say an, an awareness, an openness to, a felt sense of. I do have just a felt sense of something greater out there that I can't quite define, that I think is both infinite and also quite intimate, that I, if I were to say, if I had to say what I think it is, I guess I'd say, I think it's the source of all life. I think it is this actualizing force. I don't think it's neutral. I think that it, it has something to do with loving and actualizing, and I relate to it as a you, even though I don't think it's a being, but my human brain and heart are very limited. I can't relate to a force. I can't relate to the source of all life. I can only relate to a you. If you asked a tree what it thinks of the divine, it would probably use different language because it's a tree, right? But I'm a human being. So while I relate to the divine as a you, I don't think that the divine is a being. All of that is so contradictory, right? You can't pin any of that down. That's not a simple definition, but you know that's the best I can do for something that I think is just so far beyond my human capacity to understand. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Sarah Hurwitz. From 2009 to 2017, she worked in the White House serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Well, a moment ago, you said that you're not going to give a definition of God that is sort of this being in the sky, but you did venture a beginning sort of uh, explanation of kind of how your thought about God is sort of resting right now. But you used a phrase a moment ago that I think is important for us to not leave behind. You used the phrase of response to the divine. Even if we can't define who, what, when, where, how God is, there's still this call to respond. There's still this call to some kind of relationship. And I'd love to learn more about how you, through your practice of Judaism, find yourself and find others responding to the divine, even if it's not anything beyond just being able to say the name itself. Yeah, you know, I think that while we can't, I don't think we can necessarily say that we know what or who this is, I do think that we as Jews have a sense that we are called to live our lives in response to this. And I think this is true of many people, many different religious traditions. They have a sense that they're, they're being called to live life in response to the divine. And I think you know, our Jewish laws and wisdom are our attempt to do that. You know, if you look at our key holy texts, which is the Torah, which is the first five books of what Jews refer to as the Tanakh and what Christians refer to as the Old Testament, that's a book that depicts God, right? That, that sort of has this, uh, like a story about who God is, in some ways, who God is and sort of what God requires of us. You know, I don't, I don't take that text literally. Jews do not read that text literally, right? We don't, we don't live by a literal surface understanding of that text. We've actually spent 2,500 years interpreting that text. I think that this is something that a lot of people of different 
traditions don't quite understand. You take that line, an eye for an eye. 2,000 years ago, our ancient rabbis said, no, 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 no. What that means is that if I put out your eye, I owe you monetary compensation. That's what that means. So a lot of the things that trouble people about the Old Testament, we don't actually take literally, we've interpreted them. And I think that said, I do think this story, it's a, it's a moral story. It's a story about a God that rescues this very vulnerable group of Israelites, the, the early our Jewish ancestors who are enslaved in Egypt. And this God rescues them, assembles them at the foot of a mountain and basically gives them a mission. He basically says to them, your mission is to create a society that is the exact opposite of Egypt, that subverts all the old oppressive and abusive power structures of Egypt. You know, a society where we don't abuse the weak, we actually care deeply for the weak. A society where instead of being preoccupied with pharaohs and emperors and kings, we care about the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor, right? It's really demanding that these people create a society that's just precisely the opposite of the one from which they have just been freed. And I think that's the Jewish mission, right? I think we are called to live in response to that charge. And this is not simply ancient wisdom. This is literally wisdom for our time. I want to stress to listeners how contemporary and how applicable they will find this book here all along. But you you just began to talk about interpretation, and you talked about the the Torah, the first five books of the Tanakh, which is what the Jewish tradition calls what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. But there's this other set of books, and without getting, and, and if a listener picks up your book here all along, they'll get the technical details of the Mishnah, the Gemara, all of those aspects that go into this book called the Talmud, these, these books called the Talmud. But if you could, for the sake of our listeners, give us a, maybe a 25,000-foot view of what the Talmud is and how that fits into the interpretation of the Bible and the interpretation of tradition. Sure. So, you know, back in ancient times, there was a a large temple in Jerusalem that was really the site of Jewish religion. It was where Jews made animal sacrifices to, to worship God, as most ancient groups did. But then the temple was destroyed by the Romans for the second time in the year 70. And suddenly, you know, Judaism no longer had its its key place to worship. So ancient rabbis had to come together to figure out a, a new way to interpret Judaism that we would be based in homes and synagogues and based around studying and praying from sacred text. So the Talmud is this massive, it's like 2,700 double-sided pages of text which is really just going through and interpreting the Torah, talking about you know how you live life in a society, how you follow Jewish laws. It's a really intricate, very detailed document. And I think you know an analogy that I would I would draw is I would say that the Torah is to the Constitution as the Talmud is to all of our Supreme Court cases, our constitutional amendments. Just as you know, we have the original version of the Constitution, which had some real problematic parts to it, I think we could all agree, we spent 250 years interpreting that document. And so we don't, thank God, we've outlawed slavery. Thank God we've allowed women to vote, right? We've we've interpreted that. Similarly, you know, the Torah is a 2,500-year-old document. And for the past 2,500 years, we've similarly been interpreting that. You know, we we don't amend it, but we certainly interpret it. So today, in 90% of American Jewish communities, women serve as rabbis, gay people serve as rabbis, we perform gay marriages, right? These are a result of our interpretive efforts, just like we as Americans have interpreted our constitution. That is such a fantastic analogy, because when we read those words in the Constitution, we the people, we understand that historically, at the time that it was written, it didn't mean all the people. And over time, it's been interpreted to mean more and more of the people, to mean the enfranchisement of women, the enfranchisement of minorities. But that's exactly parallel to what you were just saying about an eye for an eye, that even though on the page it says one thing, the interpretation of the tradition allows it to mean something else in a way that is more inviting, a way that is more hospitable, a way that is more forgiving or more accommodating. As I'm making these kind of parallels, am I am I following your thought correctly or would you say it a different way? Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And you know, Jewish Jewish tradition, it's we're constantly debating and arguing and questioning, you know, th- these ancient rabbis when they were debating to try to figure out how to interpret the Torah in light of the loss of the temple, you know, they didn't just lay out a bunch of ironclad simple rules. They actually issued a, a, a bunch of opinions. You know, they would issue a majority opinion, which is what people followed, but they also preserved the dissenting minority opinions because it was really important to always have that alternative viewpoint 
And they thought like, who knows, you know, many generations from now, maybe that minority viewpoint will be seen to be more relevant, right? So there was this real sense that we would evolve. And this is, I think, what's allowed Judaism to survive for so, you know, thousands of years, this sense of just constantly responding to the times of always preserving our traditions. You know, we don't ditch our traditions. We don't walk away from them. We preserve them, but we take them with us. And I think that's really the key, the key process and project of Judaism. You know, you, you come from a background in politics, and oftentimes you'll hear phrases like, history is written by the winners. But what's so profound about what you just told me and what you just told my listeners is that the Talmud, the interpretive tradition of Judaism, made an intentional effort to preserve the voices of the losers of the arguments. Is that a correct way of phrasing what you just said? Absolutely. It's very correct. And actually, if you look back you know, way back in history, there were there were two different schools of rabbis at one point, the House of Hillel, the House of Shammai. And, you know, they had different ways of interpreting uh, the Torah. And the House of Hillel was really, in a way, more respected because their approach involved reading Shammai's opinions first before then deciding to how to issue their own. So they, they actually took the time to read the opinions of the other side before necessarily coming to their own conclusions. And that is very much valued in Judaism. It's actually an idea of argument for the sake of heaven, meaning that we have these debates not to win, not to make me the winner and you the loser, but to really arrive at the truth, right? To kind of get to that most beating heart truth, to sharpen each other's minds, to, to whittle down each other's points till we get to what, what's really deeply true. And I think that's, that's something that's very powerful about this tradition. I think here, as our conversation is drawing to a close, I now understand at a deeper level what you're trying to accomplish with this book here all along. You're not trying to proselytize. You're not trying to draw other people necessarily into the practice of Judaism, although it would, it would be wonderful, I'm sure, if they did. But you're trying to take this wisdom and make it accessible because if anything right now, we so need that spirit of arguing for the sake of heaven. We so need that spirit of not trying to be the winner all the time, but rather to go to this higher purpose. If I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, this higher purpose where we're even listening to our opponents and considering their livelihood and their well-being while we're making our decisions, even if we're the ones in power. As I'm beginning to see this, am I getting it? Am I, am I understanding why you wrote this book? Absolutely. You know, it, it was very much about that. It was to share this tradition with my fellow Jews who might not have been able to be exposed to parts of it that I think are really powerful. And, you know, it's to share with everyone because, you know, I've been so enriched and moved and inspired by what people of other faith traditions have shared with me. You know, I've learned so much from that. And so I, I wanted to do the same for others. And it's just been, it's been a really great experience. A lot of very powerful and moving conversations have come out of it. Well, Sarah Hurwitz, I have to say, I loved this book. I loved, oh. I loved so much. I, I, I studied Judaism in graduate school as a minor subject when I was doing my dissertation, but I learned so much more about the faith and about the practices and about the complexity of it by reading your book. It is clear. It is accessible. Thank you so much for taking the time to write it, but thank you as well for taking the time to talk to me and my listeners about it today. This was such a pleasure, David. You are so knowledgeable and such a great interviewer, and I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Sarah Hurwitz. From 2009 to 2017, she worked in the White House, serving as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama and as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. 
And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you again so much. Oh my gosh, you are amazing. That oh. was really impressive. I th- like I had to use more of my brain than I've had to use in a very long time. Like that was like I was like, man, this guy is going deep. Like you are not playing. That was just <laughs> I mean, I can tell like it didn't when you said you had studied Judaism. I'm like, okay, that's obvious because you, you know, drop in the Mishnah and Gemara. I was like, what? You are in this. It was very impressive. I think that your book is exact. It's hitting exactly what you wanted to do. It's just a fantastic. It's a fantastic resource text. It is. This is just a reminder of how hard this was, Mm. right? To translate this tradition, like you know, when I'm talking with you, who's someone who really actually is very learned in the complexity of of this tradition, like you could actually go right into kind of where the depth is and the sophistication. It's like most interviewers aren't, so it's very Mm. much like oh. Talk about ethics. Talk about God. You know, it's just, it's just like, tell me about X, right? right? Which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, you actually know it. And, and you you just, I mean, you can have sympathy for how hard this was. It was yes. so hard. Yes. So hard. And and such such a triumph to, and as I'm reading it, I'm going, She, I, the, I, I was amazed at how much you got and you don't have rabbinical training, how much you got, and you didn't do this. Pre- like you, you, you really do have a, a capacity for translation and for, for really deep listening. And it, it shows oh, through on every page. It's a really, really good book.